Rutgers legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to episode numero uno of Chasing Poker Greatness, the poker podcast that digs deep into the minds of poker legends, up-and-coming stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game. You'll hear it all in their own words as they explain the business of card playing from their point of view and let you in on their secrets for learning, training, playing, and constantly improving. This is your host, founder of EnhanceYourEdge.com, Brad Wilson, and I could not be more excited to share my conversation today with guest Matt Berkey otherwise known simply as Berkey. He's been a professional player since 2003, who's known for battling in some of the highest of high stakes games on the planet, and that is the way he likes it. He's gone from playing 1-2 and 2-5 games in college to claiming his seat among the world's elite in the famed Ivy's Room, where he plays No Limit Hold'em at stakes as high as 300, 600, 1200. Not just a nosebleed cash game crusher, Berkey also has 4 million in lifetime tournament winnings to go along with six WSOP final tables, despite playing a very limited tourney slate. He also loves to write, whether it be for his own blog, thevoicewithin.me, print and online magazines, or as a contributor to the Huffington Post. Being a man who thrives with multiple balls in the air, Berkey's also the founder of elite live cash game training site, solveforyacademy.com. During our conversation today, we'll get Berkey's input on what it means to be not just a good player, but a good competitor on the green felt. He'll also talk about his feelings on moving up stakes, the fear of taking shots, and how to overcome that fear. He'll also provide invaluable insights into game theory, exploitative play, and how to make sure that you're always maximizing and increasing your edge. Aside from all that, he's got some incredible stories to tell as well. Like a lot of players in their poker career, Berkey has won and lost millions of dollars, with a notable point that sometimes he does it in only one hand. You'll hear how he deals with the stellar highs of raking in seven-figure pots, as well as the crushing lows of watching small fortunes being pushed in someone else's direction, and then being asked to pose for a picture with the dude that just won said fortune. There are few people in the poker world who can say they've seen and done as much as Berkey. He is truly a gift to the game, not just because he's one of the elite players in the universe, but also because he does everything in his power to give back to the great game of poker as well. So sit back, relax, and without any further ado, this is Berkey on Chasing Poker Greatness. Berkey, it's awesome having you on the show. How are you doing, sir? Fantastic. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to uh, get to meet you face to face for the first time. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. As I tend to do starting off this show, I'd like to ask you about your story. Getting into playing cards. I know you got in 2003. Could you tell, mm -hmm. me, tell me how that happened? Uh, yeah, so I actually started playing long before that. Um, in high school, I was playing just like quarter games with my friends, but we didn't know really much about No Limit. I'm from Pittsburgh, so a lot of the East Coast influence was coming through. We mostly played variations of stud games, and they were always like, you know, these wild variations like Follow the Queen, Chicago. Basically, in any given game, there was going to be some subset of wild cards. 
and it was it was fun and i won a lot uh looking back i don't really know why i'm sure it just had something to do with psychology where like maybe i was more risk averse or less risk averse rather than uh my friends or whatever the case may be but when i got into college uh i i've never drank in my life and i played baseball so you know the peer pressure was almost double being a part of an athletic team and my bridge for being the outsider i guess aside from just like being okay at baseball was the fact that i played poker so like as a freshman i was the only one invited to the upper class in the game and that was like a good social lubricant for me by the time the money maker boom hit in 2003 i was a junior and you know 21 in a position where i could start going to casinos and things like that able to deposit online and you know i was just very fortunate <laughs> i actually to get my first bankroll there was a uh, like a, a medical study being conducted on campus uh -huh. where where they took like two you can't see i guess like on my forum but they took two skin skin grafts from each of my forearms and they were testing like a diabetic cream for people with foot ulcers so they were testing this new cream compared to neosporin which one would heal faster and i got paid like 1200 bucks for it so that, that was my initial like <laughs> bankroll starter played some like you know, 25 cent, 50 cent games in the baseball house. And I won't say that I never looked back. I went broke a myriad of times, but you know, that, that was good enough to get me through college. I had more money than I ever saw in my life by the time I was graduating. So you literally had skin in the game right away. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> physically. <laughs> you mentioned that, that you had never drank alcohol. Did you drink did, like to, or did you, was poker just your, that was your bridge? Yeah, no, I, I've never consumed alcohol in my life. I've never wow. really had a drug outside of caffeine. I've just always been like kind of on the straight and narrow. It's, it, it was one of those things where like I, the curiosity just eluded me and still does to this day. I've never really felt or felt like any sort of like uh, compelling drive to, to test this stuff out. It just seemed like a net negative to me. But yeah, like poker was, was a huge uh, I guess bridge in that way where I was, I was shy, especially going to college. I didn't like change. I came from a small school. It was hard to bridge that gap. So it was nice to have something that, uh, whether I was or wasn't, I had convinced myself I was skillful at and it allowed me then to, uh, kind of like socially blend in and, you know, just like the landscapes now, I feel like it almost prepared me in a way where, uh, I didn't have to lose in order to be liked or invited into these games, right? I just had to be the guy who had enough money to sit down and play. And, uh, you know, as I kind of like bridged the gap into high stakes, it was a lot of the same. It wasn't about being uh, the guy who came and dumped money. It was about being the guy who could be a gracious loser amongst people who had more than enough money to, to gamble with and, uh, you know, to be a competitor and treat everybody equally despite the fact that, in life itself, we might not be on level playing field. Yeah. And this is something that comes up a lot uh, on this show is respecting folks and just, just being cool, you know, being yeah. a fun person to play with is something that takes you shockingly far in the poker world, as far as developing relationships and getting opportunities. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're, if you're just, uh, you know, an asshole, then it's hard to you know play in private games. It's hard to to get invited. It's hard to have a social life. It just it just compounds. Every everything is so much harder when you're not just a, a cool kind of easygoing, like you said, gracious loser. 
because I mean, everybody's going to lose, right? Sure. Reg- regardless of whether you're a favorite or not. So just, you know, be happy for folks when they win and shake it off and just focus and play hard, but control your emotions effectively. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's a tough endeavor, right? It takes a lot of work and introspection and self-discovery to actually be able to get to that point because the fact of the matter is whenever you're in an environment where you're getting to play some sort of nosebleed almost nobody is going to be financially prepared for that so you're going to be the one out on a limb not your not your opposition and that's going to do a few things it's going to make you really heighten your competitive drive which isn't really an appealing trait to everybody like yeah they want to feel like there's a battle taking place but nobody wants to feel like they're being looked down upon or that like you're so good that they don't stand a chance. So, uh, you know, there's a few things at play. Like I just kind of grew up through the game with the idea of the, the old gambler's axiom of uh, you got to give action to get action. And, you know, taking that loss leader concept where you're willing to play more hands pre-flop than everybody else because you feel like you're able to recoup a lot of that EV post-flop. And yeah, that results in a lot of big swings and a lot of moments where you feel like the world's crashing down. Uh, one story in particular, I'll never forget the biggest pot I'd lost in my life up to that point. Uh, it was a $1.2 million pot where I had four bet pocket Kings preflop against, uh, Roger Sipple, who is, uh, you know, a very wealthy man from California, uh, businessman, you know, but loves the game. He calls and the board comes down king, jack, six or something like that with the king of spades. And we get in a bunch of money on the flop. The turn is the queen of spades, putting king, queen of spades out uh, and now ace, 10 or 10, nine to straight. And I check shove for like 400,000 and he calls and I go once or twice, Roger. And he goes, I don't know. I have a pretty good hand. I go, so do I. And he goes, <laughs> what is it? And I table kings. And he goes, oh, my hand's not so good anymore. And he has jack 10 of spades for a pair of a royal draw. And I'm like, okay, so twice? <laughs> it's like, nah, nah, just, just once. Uh, and I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> fine, please. Please don't do it to me. And the ace of spades just rips off on the river. And he jumps out of his seat. It's the happiest moment of his poker career. I'm at my lowest point for sure. And I like have to endure this guy like laughing like a hyena, taking pictures of the board, taking pictures of me, me shoving half a million his way and everything else. But it's like, you know, that's a defining moment because if I throw a tantrum or I hang my head or I I physically get ill at the table, whatever the case may be, they'll enjoy that pain that, that I exude in that moment. But then they'll also have this like sour taste, especially if I'm like aggressively emotional where it's like, I don't want to play with that kid. Like, you know, I gave him action in a spot where I'm a big dog and I got lucky and he treated me like shit because of it. So it was quite the opposite, right? It's like, uh, you almost get a guarantee to be in those games for a long time coming because you're able to take those losses and you're able to just like understand like, Hey, this might've been a defining pot in my career thus far, but as long as I can still get myself in action and, and, have a, a chance to sit at the table, like there will be more defining pots down the line. Yeah, you you play the long term, and yeah. that is a giant pot. And, and also, it, it, you know, you, you don't want to make it bittersweet for them either. Right. By you know, you make it bittersweet, it 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 leaves it like you said, it leaves a bad taste in their mouth, and 
at the end of the day, you obviously want to be in that game and you want to be flopping top set and getting shit tons of action from Jack 10 of spades. Yeah. Um, whether or not you want them to make a Royal is uh, a different matter, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Tell me, you know, you mentioned about being out on a limb in like, you know, the first time that you're playing big, do you have any memories or stories about, you know, the first time you were playing big, like what was going on in your head? How did you deal with that? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I guess I'll compartmentalize a little bit because there's a difference between like the first time I played 2550 on my own dime where I might've had like a quarter million to my name versus the first time I played 300, 600 where I was in a, I don't even know what to call it. Like calling it a backing deal almost isn't fair because I was putting up a lot of the risk myself, but the 2550, I don't remember very much. I just remember like it was my time. I had arrived. I felt like I was comfortable in the spot. And I got my head kicked in by Robo sitting immediately to my left, just three betting me to death. The entire <laughs> session. Yeah. So like I got humbled a little bit, but it was also really early in my career. It was like 2010. Fast forward then to like 2013, 14 ish. Uh, when I first got to play the big game, this was just way different. And thankfully I was emotionally prepared for it, but that only takes you so far, right? Because no matter how emotionally in tune you are to how you're supposed to feel as a professional and how you're supposed to carry yourself. Once you walk out of that room and are no longer surrounded by uh, your business counterparts and you're no longer expected to act like a professional, all of those emotions that you've been suppressing for the better part of X amount of hours just hit you like a brick wall. And, uh, you know, I can remember my first session very vividly. I, I was playing 200, 400. It was a 50 K minimum buy-in. I put up half. And at the time, I probably had like, I don't know, 300, 400,000 to my name. So not terribly large exposure, but pretty big, a little bit on the reckless side. I think I had like a total uh, 75K exposure for the session. And I flopped top two versus bottom set versus a guy that I thought to be really tight. And I just remember being in a situation on the river where I'm facing a 25K all in. And I just like, no, I'm supposed to fold and just like try to suppress that feeling because I think it's just my emotions getting the best of me. And uh, I ultimately arrived at what's a theoretically correct call. And he just shows me bottom set. And I can just remember like replaying that hand for weeks. But it's just like any other time that you take shots in your life. Eventually you become numb to the surroundings and you just have to do a lot of the work off the table where it's like, okay, I have a proper shot taking strategy. I know how much risk I'm, I'm in for. I've fleshed out what the worst case scenario can be and I accept it. So now whenever I'm behind the glass doors, I'm just going to play as if I was playing my normal game and whatever comes of it comes of it. And once I was able to kind of like get to that point, it, it really altered everything. I've played some like ridiculous hands that if in the moment I knew or I was more aware of like how much actual risk of ruin I was taking on, I probably would have just like bowed out and cowered and not made the correct play. But, you know, it's what we get paid to do. And it's, it's really what you need to condition yourself from day one if you want to take this career path seriously. There's a lot of things there. Um, the psychological aspect of dealing with, you know, you have top two against a tight player facing a 25K shove on the river and telling yourself that, yeah, like theoretically, this is a this is a call. I feel like it's a fold in this spot. Is it my emotions? 
you know, is, is it because I'm playing big and right. that's affecting this decision? Um, mm-hmm. So there's there's a lot to go into play. How, how do you measure your risk of ruin? Like, uh, what does that look like for folks? Right. Uh, so, I mean, there are way more precise metrics than, than what I can give you off the top of my head. There are actual calculators and things like that that you can uh, take a look at. The Kelly criteria is obviously the, the benchmark for um, where we should begin examining risk of ruin. But even once you've done all of that, that work, there's still like this emotional risk of ruin that I would say is like pretty impactful where when you cross certain, certain thresholds of pain, it now becomes like detrimental and there's a deterioration process that happens to your game. And, you know, I, I can't imagine I'm the only one who's been victim of this throughout my career, but it was a big thing that like led me to working with Elliot Rowe in uh, 2016, where I just seemed to have this innate ability to accumulate a lot of money very, very, very quickly. But as I hit certain thresholds, even if I didn't necessarily up my risk, my emotional risk seemed to be like greatly increasing. And I was almost like playing, playing to maintain rather than to grow. And, uh, you know, keeping that mindset, even if it was subconscious, was very destructive. It would just put me in situations uh, similar to this, like, top two versus bottom set where I couldn't trust myself because I was unaware of if I was just emotionally attached to this situation or if this was an actual read-based decision that I could make in-game. And, you know, after working with him a lot and, and kind of deprogramming that, I, I guess, like, level of emotional tolerance that you have to the game, it became a lot more strategical. And I could just kind of pick apart the hand history and start making really exploitative calls, really exploitative folds, because especially in like 2013 to 16, whatever, that's what we were paid to do. I mean, that's, that's what the environment allowed. Yeah. Uh, And for the most part in live poker, I feel like even today, that's still, it's still the way to be playing, you know, whatever up to 10 and a quarter, even, uh, or even bigger, you can, you're playing live, you have a lot of information. And a lot of times, uh, the inclination I feel like is for folks to say, well, you know, if I fold here, then that's very easy to exploit. And it's not GTO mm-hmm. and blah, 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 blah. But the thing is like the better information that you get, the better decisions you can make. And who cares if something is exploitative, if all of your information tells you, look like, you know, this dude's got bottom set, like this is a fold, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, one of the big misconceptions that kind of has gotten passed along with the whole GTO movement is that, A, we're capable of playing actual game theory optimally, which we're not. Yeah, yeah. Um, not. And that, B, that somehow it applies to the live realm in the sense that uh, we need to protect ourselves, even against the best in the world. Like, of course, you have to be far more protected in your in your strategy construction. But that's simply because their counter strategies are a lot stronger, not because they recognize some sort of hole in your game and immediately lean into an exploit. They're not wavering either, right? So it's, it takes a lot of data and repetition in order to even begin to poke holes in whatever exploitative strategies um, we're, we're conveying. So uh, really the whole concept of like having balanced ranges and things like that, it's, it's, it's not to it's not to keep your opponent from like understanding like, Oh, he does this action too much or that. It's more so just to have a strong strategy that won't allow a really strong opponent to kind of like step on your neck. But when you're against weak opponents, 
you should just do whatever your hand incentivizes you to do. Yeah. And I think we've seen a lot of that in the high roller scene too. Um, you know, these, these kind of top notch guys who go on runs, it looks like they start doing something different than the field sooner. And I think largely what that different thing is, is just playing in a more hand versus range dynamic rather than range versus range. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, how, like how many data points do you really get in a live setting? You don't even right. get, you don't even get a ton of data points in an online, online setting. Um, typically, unless you, you know, if you're playing in like a big zoom pool, for instance, mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it's a, I think it's a misnomer and I think it can be very hurtful to people's poker career, their earn rate and their win rate when they just get stuck on this idea of GTO Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, we're paid, we're paid to make good decisions and we're paid to maximize the value of our hand in certain situations. And sometimes, um, yeah, we may bet uh, one-tenth on the river to induce a river raise. And yeah, we're not doing it with a bluff ever, but that's okay, right? right? Because right. they don't, because the, our opponents are not going to realize that. They don't understand. So basically you want to maximize the monetary decision in front of you instead of yeah. giving up, giving up EV for like some future spot that's never, ever, ever going to happen. Right. I think like one of the best uh, mantras that somebody can follow, and it should be what guides their study as well as their execution, is think theoretically and then uh, execute exploitatively. And like if, you, if you're able to take that mindset and then work it into your line work, you're going to put yourself in some situations where like, yeah, you might take the slight worst of it, but it'll be an accident based upon the fact that your opponent just happened to have a certain region of the range or uh, they just like naturally fell into an exploit uh, effectively on accident. Uh, but in a general sense, it's like you're going to maximize, you're going to find that bet size that they're willing to call. That's the maximum bet that they're willing to call. You're going to be able to, you know, over bet exploitatively. You're going to be able to small bet exploitatively. And like all these things are really critical in the live environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even in the online environment for the most part, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it, you gotta, you have to really, <laughs> It's like you have to run into a world-class player for it to really matter. Yeah. Oh, one thing I, I wanted to go back, I forgot. But anyway, sure. you mentioned early on in your poker career, by the way, in 2010. And I, I want folks to sort of let that seep into their brain, that you're seven years in it and you say it's early. Mm-hmm. So like, regardless of your success and how things are going in your own career, after a few years, like there's, there's a quote that I love – that says, um, you know, we we always dramatically overestimate what we can do in a year, and dramatically underestimate what we can do in ten. Sure. And um, you know, don't get down on yourself if you're a few years into your journey and things aren't going the way that you want them to go. Just keep battling; it works out. Like if yeah. you keep doing yeah. the work, it works out. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's easy for me to say that was early in my career because. Uh, there was no fast tracking methods back then. Like you could be one of the lucky ones who got into a soft market, like, like all of us who got in at that time frame did and had money to begin with because having liquidity at that point gave you more shots to fire, gave you more capacity to just play the highest stakes or being the smartest guy in the room was going to be the, the, the fastest track to profit. Right. But for most of us, uh, the trajectory is going to look a lot more similar to mine where it's like, you're battling somewhere between a 10 K and hundred K role for the first decade of your career. And it takes that monumental moment to kind of like springboard you through. It's a little different now in the sense that the market's a lot tougher, but there are also infinitely more metrics to, to uh, kind of fast track things. Like 
there are kids probably three years into their career that have a lot of similar knowledge as people who are playing really high stakes. And the money factor is really the only separating thing. Back then, that wasn't true. It was like, it was a largely like intuition, natural talent, the way that you were able to distill the game down into a mathematical language, uh, despite the fact that there weren't really any uh, trailblazers or, or guidelines set for you previously. So like t- 2010 for me was a big benchmark because I was dead broke in August of 2009 and Brent Hanks actually started backing me uh, in online tournaments. And by uh, February 2010, I chopped the full tilt 750K for like 105,000. And it was the completion of like a 300K upswing in online tournaments. So I conquered a phase of my career at that point. Shortly thereafter, I got 41st in the main event. So like I conquered another phase. And now all of a sudden I had the liquidity available to me to start beating 10, 20, no limit at the Bellagio on the regular. And that became like phase three, which was where my heart and soul always was to begin with. So, you know, for me, like that year was really the year where everything finally came together, opportunities aligned. And it was easy to say like, okay, I, I can confirm now that even, even if it's slightly biased that, you know, I am good at this game. It's a profitable market to be in and the trajectory moving forward really uh, skyrockets. You know, now I have the availability to play 10 Ks. I have the availability to take shots at 50, hundred and all of that's very critical to the, to the growth metric of any sort of business. Yeah. So tell me, so you went broke in 2009. Did you ever have any thoughts of quitting poker, going to something else? Like- um, yeah, less so then, uh, just because like I had been in the rinse repeat cycle for six or seven years at that point, my biggest bankroll, um, between 2003 and 2009 was only like 50 K and you know, I say only with an asterisk, but like back then it's so hard to communicate this to, to younger generations now because they're in such a different landscape, but you know, to give you uh to paint the picture. The first no limit game that I played in a casino was a one, one $40 min max buy-in. So it was a 40 big blind game. The rake was $3 a hand and they took a dollar bad beat. So, you know, this is unbeatable by today's standards, but in the game back then, when it was as soft as it was, people would fold on rivers to like a $6 all in in an $80 pot. <laughs> yeah. And I crushed this game. I, I beat it for like $6,000, which is just unheard of. It's, it's literally unfathomable now. And of course, like some of that is variance or a lot of it is variance, whatever. But a lot of it was just the nature of the market. People thought very binarily uh, about hands where it's like, either I have the best of it or I don't. And if I don't, I don't want to be all in, even if it's for my last $6. So, you know, 50K... It, it wasn't a lot of money. I mean, that's what people would utilize to play like one, two, two, five now, but I was playing like five, 10, 10, 20 pretty regularly, basically recognizing like I'm young. I need to take on all the risk in the world now, because if I fail, it doesn't really matter. I have a computer science degree. Like I have a lot of other things I can do. I'd much, I, I'm much more concerned with turning 50 into 500 than I am worrying about going from 50 to zero because it will only take me 10 K to start up again. And that's an obtainable amount of money. So you know, uh, I think I moved to Vegas in 2008 and I moved here with like 10 K by 2009. I, I was broke. I, I think my peak bankroll was like 2006. I had like 50 K or so. So, you know, I was just in the rinse repeat cycle. Once I had a lot of money 
in 2010, I think I was a little over 300,000 to my name. Now I felt like, okay, this is worth protecting. Uh, at the time I was uh, 28 years old. So it's like, okay, I'm getting closer to my thirties. I need to be mature and responsible about this. Problem is, is like, at that point, I didn't have that education. My whole education up until that point was trying to get to this point yeah, and, right. and then just trusting yourself to do what's right. But you know, now I'm looking around and it's like, okay, well, I don't know what's right, but I know what I know. So I'll invest in poker. I'll invest in myself. I put uh, like 150 K into my friends who I thought were good and deserved an opportunity backing them in like five ten, and then like, you know, three K tournaments and below. And then I took the rest and I just played like 10, 20, 40 uh, and bigger with it. I, a lot of times I was playing like 25, 50, sometimes 50, a hundred and you know, variance kicked in like no shock. I went on a small downswing myself. I probably lost like over that 18 month period. I probably lost like 40 or 50,000 um, playing cash. A lot of it actually in like one or two sessions. Just like as an example, I played 5, 10, 20 one day at the Venetian against a reg who I don't think currently plays anymore. When you hear the hand, you understand why. But um, in a hijack button scenario, we got in 25,000 each where I had kings and he had eight kings. And I asked him if he wanted to run it twice. And he just goes, no. <laughs> and just fucked me that. It's just like AJ's deuce. Oh, so, um, you know, there were a lot of memories of that. But, you know, the, the big element of it was just like losing piles through backing. Uh, in scenarios where like, you know, again, I didn't know where else to invest my money that I could potentially see the return that I would see backing. But the other half of it was like, I was kind of arrogant enough where it's like, well, if I'm a winning player and I think that they're close to being a winning player or slight winning players or whatever the case may be, then my money and knowledge combined with their ability to work will certainly lead to uh return. And it's like, that's, that's not true. <laughs> like what would make them work is not giving them money and keeping them hungry and forcing them to prepare for the opportunity instead of just like dumping a bunch in their lap and saying like, okay, go nuts on the 510 street. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I lost Kyle's backing and I ended up going broke, uh, halfway through 2012. And like, that was the point where, you know, that was, that was probably the crux of my career in a lot of ways, at least from a self-discovery standpoint, because like now I am 30 and I'm kind of asking like, what the hell are you going to do with yourself? You've been doing this, or you've been going through this process for as long as you've been playing the game. And, you know, you, you forget the fact that 50,000 isn't that much. And the times that you went broke off 20 K is like pretty insignificant. And you just start to lump it all together in the narrative where it's like, you're always flush and then you're bust, you're flush and then you're bust. And it's like, well, this time that actually did apply because I went broke off 300 K and that's pretty unacceptable, I think. Um, but also still well within the realm of the stakes I was playing and, you know, I was firing hard. I wasn't, I wasn't just like trying to, to gradually grow. I still had the mindset of like 50 K to 500. It's like, okay, well this just becomes easier now that I have a little bit more security. So yeah, that year off where I just did nothing but study and uh, a little bit of coaching on the side, it was, it was miserable and it was a lot of self-actualization and a lot of questioning, like, do I belong in this career? Do I actually have the talent for this? Um, you know, where am I faltering? A lot of just poking holes at, you know, where my mistakes have been made, where I falter as a human, where, uh, you know, maybe I'm not the perfect poker player uh, for reason X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, building off of strength thereafter. 
And, you know, a lot of that's like what led to the development of Solve for Why. By the time the summer of 2013 rolled around, I ended up having a massive World Series where I won like 500K. And uh, I just had this Google Drive that was full of like, you know, gigabytes of, uh, I guess, like self-reflection and, and coaching metrics that I had tied together. And once I was able to get into the big game thereafter, I was like, okay, like, this isn't just happenstance. This is, this is a byproduct of hard work, and I kind of understand what it takes now. And the fact that you could replicate your success over and over and over again, ignoring, <laughs> ignoring for a moment all of the uh, plane crashes in between. Um, right. The fact that you could replicate it over and over is kind of proof that you're doing something right, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And I think that even you know staking those folks, like like you said, you didn't really know what know what to do. You didn't have a plan, but you were attempting to scale, right? Like you're yeah. only you're only one man. You can only play a certain number of hours per day, but that was an attempt to scale, which is not in mm-hmm. and of itself a bad idea. It right. just you know you just have to kind of have more better guidelines and a better business model before you you yeah. go into it. Um, but yeah, so so. After the, the that WSOP, you, you're you're flush again. Like, there's obviously a narrative, a story that leads to you playing, you know, a pot for 1.2 million dollars, right? I mean, that's sure. that is a fuckload of money. I mean, <laughs> uh, that is a massive, massive, massive pot. Like, did was it just like straight rocket up from that point? Like, how how did that journey go? Uh, yeah. So. Um... You know, like I said, I went broke the World Series of 2012, uh, and I spent a lot of time reflecting and, and just trying to grow as a person and as a player. And I had a couple good friends in the business world, Bob Bright being one of them, and then uh, this guy, Michael Bertolini, being another. And One second, one second. Uh, where, sure. where did you meet these friends? Playing the poker, first. Right. So Have just, yeah, just, just like let's hammer home this point of being a cool guy while you're playing poker because yeah. so many side benefits of that. Okay. Now go on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to like frame that a little bit better, um, you know, Bob is worth hundreds of millions and uh, Michael Bertolini is like Joe Montana's manager. He, uh, he basically just like has access to everybody. Like it's not that he's so wealthy himself. It's more so that just like his network is priceless. Uh, does work with Parcells, does work with Montana, like just all these guys who are connected to, to the ends of the earth. So the whole time I was broke, I'd been playing local games with Bob, like smaller, like five, 10 and below for the better part of six or seven years. He loved my action. We battled hard because, you know, the stakes mean nothing to him. And <laughs> I was just a chippy up and comer who like really enjoyed gambling. And he used to beg me to come play their, their big game. And at the time it was 100, 220K minimum buy-in. And like, I didn't want people to know I was broke. I, I just like very much kept to myself. I was like, someday, you know, I just, I'm not ready for it yet. I would give a bunch of excuses, whatever the case may be. Leading up to that summer, Berto, uh, Michael Berlini was able to like be the one to be a catalyst to like getting me into the series. He just randomly said like, I'm tired of losing. Here's 5K. I want you to be my coach on retainer, and I'm not taking no for an answer. It's like he's got <laughs> one of my really good friends, so it's like I would coach him for free. Yeah, but he just knew I needed help, and he knew I needed a jump start, and uh, I turned that 5K into 50 very quickly. Uh, final tabling an event at the win, and then playing some cash, and then turned that 50 into 500, um, selling a, a package to the series. So 
once all of that was said and done, now all of a sudden I had like liquidity again and I was where I was in 2010. And I knew like, I didn't want to go the backing route. I was a lot more mature at this point. So um, what I understood was if I was going to start playing bigger, like I wanted to, because all I ever cared about was progressing up the cash game ladder. It was never a, a concern of mine to just be like a tournament crusher. High rollers didn't even really exist yet. So for me, it was like, how do I make it from 5, 10, 10, 20 to the big game? And, you know, basically just what I understood was that leverage is everything. And being able to find a network of people who believe in you and then allow your 300,000 to be worth 3 million will give you great returns. So uh, Bob had been struggling in the big game. He reached out to me, asked me if I could, you know, help sure up some leaks in his game. Um, and in return, he would give me like uh, a, a small coaching fee. I was like, yeah, sure. That'd be great. And really in the back of my mind, all I'm thinking about is like, this is a great opportunity to kind of like reinitiate that conversation of uh, me getting into the game myself. So after like a month or so of us working together, he's like, you know, we could really use a guy like you in the game who drives the action. Um, would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, of course. So he kind of like told me what the stakes were. I think they had bumped up to like two, four, 50 K minute at that point. And I just immediately reached out to Birdo and I was like, look, man, I have this opportunity, but I don't want to fuck off all my money. Like I did the last time, you know, who do you know? What can you do? And he just pulled ties, found me some guys who like were believers. And suddenly I had a bankroll adequate enough to start playing these stakes where it got a little scary was, I lost a little bit out of the gate and a little bit is relative to the stakes. Uh, I think I lost like two buy-ins in my first five or six sessions. And then suddenly we're just playing three, six, 12, like oh. every day. Yeah. Ed, every day. <laughs> wow. It's just like, okay, I'm going to have to dilute myself more. It's like, I, you know, I kind of backed into a, a, a bit of a self-inflicted business degree at this point. You know, it's like, I had made all the mistakes, so I kind of understood how to run a startup, at least on a on a basic level. So it's like, all right, I'm gonna have to dilute myself. We're gonna have to get a lot more. But you know, effectively, like I put two of my three hundred thousand up for uh, a, like a return plus a free roll. And uh, when we needed more money, I I would just further dilute myself, and we just we just fired hard. So uh, within I would say eight months, rolling into the World Series of 2014. I was a staple in the game, playing pretty much every day, winning small. I, I might have been up like uh, a few hundred thousand or so, but that summer was just epic beyond words. In my five or six years in the game since, no summer has compared. It was just, uh, it was the last summer that all the guys from Macau were allowed in the state still. Um, that whole group that got busted, uh, sports betting or, or running that ring out of Caesars. Yeah. So they were all here every day, uh, just the wanting to play 24 seven, you know, so the game would just like run around the clock. And when seats needed to be filled, I was the first guys they would call. And man, I mean, just the level of sickness that was taking place at those stakes. Uh, I had my biggest win that summer. I think I won 1.6 million in uh, one three, six, 12 session. And yeah, it, it was just nothing could really compare the, the luster had worn off after, after that three month uh, grind. How did it feel? that summer like what, what were the thoughts going through your head as you're like you know enjoying your breakout summer um that's i think that's the biggest problem with being a professional poker player is like you don't get to enjoy it 
You know, it's, I'm on pins and needles every single day because I don't know if I'm going to have a seat. I don't know if this hot run can continue. (laughs) I recognize that like, I can't possibly get a hold of enough money to where my risk of ruin is so low that this is just like risk free money. Mm -hmm. You know, so like every decision is critical. Every lineup I sit in matters. My seat draw like matters. So like just running hot in those situations. Uh, in a lot of ways, like kept me in action for a longer period of time than maybe I otherwise would have if things had been a little bit different. So, yeah, I mean, it's more anxiety than than joy and uh, I, I guess like any sort of retribution. Reflectively, I was able to kind of look back after the series had calmed down and the game had slowed down a little bit. And it's like, wow, that was fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like, the amount of seven figure pots that I played over over that stretch, it was just like, this is a nuts way to go about it. But, you know, the fact that I'm only 10% invested, 15% invested, whatever, it's like, it's relative too. Yeah. It's still, no matter how invested you are, it's still probably fucking nuts to play a seven figure pot. I mean, yeah. I I mean, yeah. I I don't know what to compare it to. Nothing else. Uh, The only thing that ever compared to it was uh, playing the bubble of the super high roller bowl. Just because I was out on a limb on that one too. I took way too much of myself and really just uh, fired hard on this notion that I could compete. And you said something too, like about poker players. And this is like um, back when I was coaching a lot. Uh, I don't really do one-to-one coaching anymore. But my, I would always have my students, I'm like, please remove EV from all of, of your databases. Don't look mm-hmm. at it. Because – you're only going to feel one of two ways. You're either going to feel bad because you're running below EV, or you're right. going to feel bad because you're running above EV. <laughs> EV, and I, you you I, think that like the bottom's going to fall out at any point, right? Yeah. So like there is no feeling good looking at this EV graph. And if it's not going right. to make you feel good, just get rid of it. And plus, it's kind of bullshit anyway. Um, it's yeah. not really accurate data. But uh, yeah, it's like you're <laughs> when, when things are going well, it, you can always like wait for the other shoe to drop, you know, as, yeah. a, as a poker player. Yeah. And it's a sickening feeling because like, we're just so fundamentally flawed. Just the, the, I mean, it keeps us from being sociopaths, but just our limbic system as a whole is just so detrimental to uh, our day-to-day operations as far as like trying to keep things rational and try to keep everything in perspective. Uh, you know, it, it, that fight or flight system kicks in and just all of a sudden, like we just turn into cavemen. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's it's tough um never never underestimate just how tough it is to to play this game and deal with the things that you inevitably have to deal with and like you mentioned the the limbic system and it's impossible to play gto and this is 100 percent accurate too right like there's no spot where you know you should raise 31 percent of the time you can't randomly generate a number one in a hundred as a human being it's impossible we're awful at, at being random anyway. So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, a lot of, a lot of the GTO stuff and the, this kind of goes back is like, it's impossible to implement. And yet yeah. we're spending hundreds of hours studying it when you can't even successfully implement it correctly. Yeah. I, I think the biggest challenge is uh, that we just don't necessarily have a better systematic approach, or at least not one that people are willing to be all in on. Like this is data driven. So people can very easily be all in on it. Whereas, you know, if you play live, like the best data that you can acquire is the information from the players around you. Like the one thing the human brain is very good at is observation. 
Now, of course, it's going to come with its own biases, but those biases are what helped get us here. So, you know, in a lot of ways, like if you're in tune to your environment, there's a lot of very profitable information that you're going to be able to accumulate that's then going to allow you to dictate where you fall on that exploitative spectrum and start making better, more calibrated decisions over and over again, as opposed to just like worrying about how perfect your mix is. Yeah, uh, 100%. What is up, you future star of poker, you? Coach Brad here, and I just wanted to take a moment to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're sitting there wondering why, why is Coach Brad promoting this PKC Poker app thing? Allow me a moment to explain my why. Battling in cash games has been my livelihood for the past 15 years. It's how I survive and put food on the table, which makes it imperative that I either test out or seek qualified opinions on all of the poker platforms on the market. One juicy find can mean the difference between a meh year and an amazing family vacation in Hawaii kind of year. With that said, I've tried almost all the major poker apps on the market to date, and despite the hype about amazingly juicy games, I've come away from the experience unsatisfied. I was just never able to find amazing success against seemingly weak competition, and in one specific case, was getting outright destroyed by passive villains playing more than 50% of their hands. What the heck was going on? After many evenings sitting in the bathtub, wondering if I had lost it, I finally dug into the data and learned something that shouldn't have been too surprising to you. These dudes were colluding and super using their pants off. So I swore off those free money, decentralized devil apps and decided to go back to my more familiar streets of ignition. It was then that I was contacted by a good friend of mine who turned out to be the vice president of worldwide operations at PKC. Him and I had a long, in-depth conversation about security, the ecosystem, and the future direction of PKC, and he managed to convince me to give it a shot. That shot turned into an incredible six months with an hourly rate that's about five times what it would have been playing on any other US platform. As it turns out, I didn't forget how to play. I just needed a level playing field to return to my crushing weights. I have no doubt that you, my community, my audience is going to play poker somewhere. And I wanna be damn sure that you don't go through the pain and frustration I felt by messing around with any poker app besides PKC. This is why promoting PKC is a no-brainer. I love my community, and I wanna put you in the best position to succeed at this game that we both love so much. So if you'd like to join me in the streets of PKC, simply head to enhanceyouredge.com PKC and get your invite code to play. You must have an invite code and you must be 21 years of age or older. One more time, that's enhanceyouredge.com PKC. Best of luck, and now, on with the show. So now, nowadays, um, what is your, your process? And actually, this can apply to before too, like when you're mm-hmm. e- experiencing sort of the exponential growth as a poker player. Um, right. What did that process look like for regularly improving your game? So I can confidently say that like prior to going broke in 2012, nothing I did mattered, right? So it was a lot of internalization. It was a lot of hand discussions. It was a lot of just trying to get my mind wrapped around the concept of variance, but none of it really mattered. Like, yeah, sure. It made me better in the sense that I was gritty. I was able to keep showing up. I was able to keep plugging away. But the reason why I won is just because I had a natural intuition or inclination to the game, right? I was, I was literally just playing a game of wits and wagers against people who were less witty than me. 
uh, as the game matured and as I personally matured, for me, what it was or what the breaking point was, uh, was dedicating like hundreds of hours to actually self-actualizing. And the reason why I think that's so important is because it's not until you're able to, you know, kind of like openly state your flaws with no emotional attachment whatsoever, that you'll actually be able to sit down and put in the work necessary to achieve a higher bottom line in this game. It, it's so simple to just fool ourselves based on whatever the outcome has been thus far, whatever repetitive pattern we think we're observing. You know, all of this is still fundamentally flawed. Uh, of course, there's going to be some, uh, I guess, like some truth to it, but it, it also depends like how you're taking in those sources, right? Like, is this something that is just your memory? Because that's going to be greatly skewed. Is this something that's like based off of your spreadsheet of tracking your results? Because again, like, you know, not the, the devil's really in the details in those scenarios. If you see that you're making $30 an hour at 510, but uh, you don't recognize that like of the thousand hours you played, the vast majority of your profit came from the hundred hours you played having position on a drunk guy who dumped 10, 10 buy-ins. Right. Then that, that metric means absolutely nothing. Right. And you can't really even say like, okay, well then just pluck out the outlier scenarios because it's like, well, that doesn't really mean anything either. Cause now we might be looking at like a 600 hours. <laughs> and you know, who gives a shit, right? Like the, the hundred hours you spent playing against the drunk guy is very fucking important to your bottom line. So like, it's not good enough to just put that out. Uh, it's, it's good enough to say like, I have a skill set whenever this environment presents itself. So I think like just becoming very intimate and secure with the areas that I felt comfortable and, and confident versus the areas that I felt weak allowed me then to like really reverse engineer strategy. And uh, effectively the way that I went about it was like a top-down holistic approach where I don't want to examine micro learning of, you know, how should I be playing small blind versus button open? How should I be playing blind versus blind? Uh, that stuff's all very important, but it, it, it has, it means nothing without context. It means nothing without uh, a larger why behind it. So for me, I just like really started from the root of, you know, what, what do I want to achieve when I sit down? And what I recognized early was that you're rewarded live for putting in the most volume of hand. So what I, I don't mean being dealt the greatest volume, because I don't think that that's very controllable. Whether you play 1500 hours or 2000 hours is still a pretty insignificant sample size. You're talking about uh, very few hands uh, over the aggregate. But what I'm talking about is of the hands that you're dealt, being able to play a higher volume of them than the knit, than the, the tight reg, than all these other players at the table um, was very important to me because it meant that I was going to be buying for more pots against players that I considered to be weak. And through that, I would be able to develop strategies that better expose their weaknesses, better played to my strengths and things along those lines. So, you know, I basically just started to form from, from big to little. And it was like, all right, well, what's a normal opening range under the gun look like? How far can I expand? And uh, what mistakes from the field am I expecting to occur that will allow me to do so? And in 2013, like that stuff was all very predictable. It was like, well, we're going to have these three profile types. Some are going to fold ace-jack versus my open. Some are going to call ace-jack versus my open. And some are going to three-bet ace-jack versus my open. I just need to be able to pinpoint where these people are at at the table and then uh, figure out like how that's going to interact with my my under-the-gun opening range, my middle position opening range, et cetera. And, you know, it just, 
it, it all just took off from there. With the advent of solvers, I was able to get a lot more, I guess, precise with it. But so did the field. The field stopped folding ace jack to an open. The field stopped only calling because they're all passive. And you know, that forced adjustments on my end too. But it's way, way, way easier to adjust off of the groundwork baseline than it ever will be to recreate the baseline. And I feel like that's maybe the scary part that newer players should be worried about is that they're all kind of skirting that learning phase where, um, you know, they're just getting out there and they're kinesthetically absorbing a lot and thinking about the game deeply because they're forced to. And instead they're just like grinding salts. And it's like, if at some point the, the baseline metrics for those salts change and they will because Players that's change. the nature of, yeah, yeah that's the nature change. of discovery, right? Like we're just, we're still, people think this game's so close to solve. It's still laughable. It's like, okay, like show me, show me your, your multi-way solves and I'll poke holes in them for days. But it's like, as we discover more, that baseline is going to look less and less and less like it did whenever you first got in. And that's what you've been building off of from day one. So if you don't have the principles behind it, the, the whys and the what's in the house, then you're just going to constantly be victim to old information. And then you're going to have to reinitiate the learning curve all over again. So if every two to three years you're going through this cycle of relearning things that you've already learned, just so that you can get proficient at whatever the current state of the game is, you're going to quit. You're going to quit or you're going to go broke or you're going to do both. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very, very intelligent way to go about I think about it like conditions. Um, mm-hmm. When I'm playing, there are certain conditions in every single game, and you you know you can be playing a certain way, and you know a loose, loose aggressive player stands up directly on your right, and a tight player sits in, and now the condition for the game has changed, and your strategy yeah. changes as well. Um, and every single you know that that's why like like people love people want cut and dry answers all day right. long. They they want right. black and white, but the reality is like the makeup of the game changes constantly which also changes your strategy and changes how you adjust and so having that top-down strategy is super clever super smart because then you're able to adjust with the game no matter who sits down and all these different little puzzle pieces yeah and i I don't mean to frame it in such a way where like everybody else got it wrong and i got it right that's not true at all (laughs) the elites are the elites for sure of course right what i'm saying is that the mimicking process is very, very fallible. Oh, and that's it's huge. Vast majority, yeah, and that's what the ma- vast majority of the community is doing, right? They're not thinking deeply and thoughtfully. They're just saying like, oh, Chris Cruck likes a 30% mix here, so I'm going to plug that in and I'm going to go that approach. Yeah, it's monkey see, monkey do without realizing all of the things that go into it because, you know, for instance, doing a Twitch stream or even making like narrating a training video, you cannot get all of the thoughts out of your head that are going in your head, right? You're like... Right. I like a three bet here. Well, there's a million conditions and a million reasons why you like a three bet versus a flat or versus a fold in a specific situation. You just can't verbalize it. So people right. will say, oh, well, this is a good spot to cold four bet. There, that, I saw, you know, I saw Berkey cold four bet here, so I'm going to cold four bet here. But like without <clears throat> understanding the conditions that led to that cold four bet and then they get smashed and they're like, what? Why do I suck? Why is he so good and why do I suck? Because right. you, did, you, you didn't fundamentally understand the why, um, yeah. which I guess makes sense for the name of your training site, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's really what it's all about. We're just trying to create heuristics that we can lean on 
when it's all said and done. So rather than trying to examine these things from such a, a, a tight vantage point or zoomed in scope, um, we want to be adaptable. That's, that's the biggest thing, right? So it's like, if it goes raise three bet and we're in a cold four bet situation, we want to have heuristics in place or protocols where we can just say like, okay, what are the things that we need to consider first? Our opponents or the formation, right? So the positional awareness of both our oppositions and ourselves. Profiles are probably a really big uh, indicator here as to what we're able to do. How often is this guy three betting? Is it too wide? Is it too tight? Is he very relatively close to, to calculated? And then like we want to start looking at hand properties. Like, okay, well, how does my hand rank as far as the cold four bet candidate goes? Does it have showdown value? Is it suited? Is it connected? Like, how do all these properties work in? And eventually you're just going to arrive at a conclusion. And the biggest thing that people need to understand is like the conclusion you arrive at is you're good is going to be accurate like 55, 60% of the time. Like that's what's going to make you good is that, that you're getting it right more often than you're getting it wrong. Not that it's a binary black and white spot where like, oh, this is a clear four bet and these are clear folds. It's like, yeah, you get aces in that spot sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. What else? You know, it's like, that's just not how poker works. It's, it's a dynamic game and there are so very few situations that are cut and dry outside of the nuts. And again, going all the way back to the limbic system, it's why people yearn for that sensation of what it's like to be facing aggression on the river with the stone cold nuts. Because it's the first time you kind of get to take a sigh of relief and just go, Oh, I know the answer. I know the answer unequivocally is to just raise. And then you have to go through the variable nature of like, well, what's my race size too? And it's like, then the anxiety builds up again. It's like, what if I don't maximize the spot? What can I do to control the fact that like, I need him to call, but I still want to maximize my earn. And you know, that little exercise in and of itself should tell people just like how much margin of error there is in any and all decision points in this game. Yeah. It, you you want to have a high batting average. Um, you're, nobody's right. nobody's going to get it right every time. And just talking about all, all the data and like the formation and the three bet percentage of villain number two, like we also have to take into consideration villain number one, right? It's villain mm-hmm. number one, a super aggressive wreck, and then villain number two is a pro who's trying to isolate and take advantage. Right. And then, then now, how does this affect us? And like, there's just so much all the time as far as information and data that goes into these decisions. And like you know, you watch it on a YouTube video and it's like, Oh, four bet. <laughs> like right, you think, right, oh, yeah. that's a great spot to four bet. I'm going to start doing that too. This is a great spot to check raise. I'm going to do that too. Without, without, you know, knowing what's really going on. Yeah. In my opinion, this is why live poker will always flourish is because deductive reasoning conquers all. So, uh, the ability to deduce what's going on in game and arrive at, at conclusions that are winning more than they're losing is really what this whole game distills down to. And no amount of solves or programs or any sort of cheat codes are available for people to do this with any level of consistency. So as long as that's the case, as long as we don't reach the singularity where we're running live HUDs in uh, (laughs) in Google Glass glasses on. Yeah. As long as that doesn't happen, then the the truest, most intelligent and brightest in the game are going to be heavily rewarded. Where that fails maybe is at the high roller circuit, but understand that they were rewarded the whole process through until arriving at that point. What should folks do to improve their, and this is like a maybe unanswerable, but their deductive reasoning, what process does that look like? I think first and foremost, everybody should be very intimate with the scientific method. 
I, I can't think of a better approach to a theoretical game than walking through that process of hypothesize, test, implement, retest, revisit conclusions, and, and rinse and repeat, right? Like just going through that top-down approach where you, you have a focus, but it's blurry, and you're open to the idea that uh, results may vary. I think that's critical. I also think like doing a lot of things that aren't necessarily poker related will really improve the expansion of like people to deduce logically. So just playing logic games in a general sense, even if it's something a little bit like one-off, like playing like connect four. I remember like the, the first time that like game theory really struck a chord with me. Well, maybe not the first time, but the first time I married it to poker directly was Connect Four in my group of friends was like really big in 2010. And a couple of us were very, very, very good. And everybody else was like very random. And it dawned on me what was taking place was literally they were random. Their first move was never pre-programmed. Uh, their second move never really had much correlation to the first. And the ones of us that were good had like patterns. And I was just like, of course, this is solvable. Like, you know, it, and I knew, I guess, inherently, like I have a I have a background in this kind of stuff, but like you just overlook that when you're in the heat of the moment of the game, right? I was 26. I wasn't necessarily thinking that way. Uh, I was happy to be out of school, but <laughs> it dawned on me one day where it's like, no, 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 wait, this is, this is unequivocally solvable. This is just a gigantic tic-tac-toe board. And, you know, starting to think that way and then having a hunger to like actually pursue more optimal solutions, it ruins the game for you in some way. But at the same time, like it expands your, your capacity to uh, think. And then just like lastly, uh, if you're a passive learner who just likes to like kinesthetically absorb things and, and stuff like that, like sports is so fantastic, man. There are just like so many illogical things that take place in sports, uh, especially I have a baseball background and I just think like the parallels between baseball and poker, two games of failure where uh, variance often chooses winners uh, in the short run, but in the long run, like you can very much scrutinize each and every decision point. It's like, if you're able to like actively watch and engage in these scenarios, uh, watching a football game, not recognizing when they're taking the high EV line versus the low one, fourth down conversions are like, you know, the most obvious and egregious, but mm -hmm. there are plenty of other ones like, you know, uh, being in third and long, knowing that you have to go forward and forth and, and airing the ball out. It's just like, you know, that's obviously lower EV than just trying to cut the yardage in half and having a manageable fourth down. I think like putting yourself in that framework as often as possible that doesn't directly correlate to poker because it can get exhausting just constantly running through flops, turns and rivers. I think it's a way to like re-engage that active part of your, your uh, rational mind. I love that. It's like, it's immersing yourself in strategy. That's not just poker. Um, right. Applying it to different areas. Yeah. That, that, that is because you, you don't want to burn out and you don't want to live only poker because mm -hmm. that can be kind of boring. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And I think, uh, I think understanding investment strategies is massive too. Right. Really? So if you can understand markets uh, and like the way that it, it all falls back on ROI and EV, no matter what you're talking about. Right. So uh, I think like one of the most egregious things that I've come to find as uh, a coach now for four or five years is how misunderstood the pot odds model is across the board when you're talking about players who are at mid stakes and below. A lot of them are good despite the fact that they refuse to understand how the investment model works in accordance to pot odds. 
And it's just like, this isn't hard. This isn't like, you know, uh, any sort of like laborious math. This is, this is pretty simplistic stuff that should be a prereq to anybody considering themselves a professional. But like, it's just insane how often I'll present a scenario. Like my, my, my go-to these days have been like, uh, you arrive at a flop, you have the nut flush draw on a dry texture, say like 10 deuce three, you have eight, eight of clubs and 10 deuce or sorry, 10, three of clubs and your opponent shoves all in for two X the pot. Do you have the right price to call? The amount of people who just like snap say no, it's just like so clear that they're just driven by fear and risk aversion and never, ever put in a single second of thought as to like what the right price actually is. Right. What, like, what villain shoving with, what's his range, what are his right. previous patterns? Um, right. And it's just like, yeah, it's just like, okay, well, uh, then you have to break it down further. It's like, well, what's your equity if you're in a worst case scenario? It's like, oh, about 38%. Like, okay, let's go with that. So what price do you need to be laid on the pot? Roughly three to two. Okay. So what price are you getting here? Uh, Let's see. Shoving for two pots. There's one pot out there. So it looks like I'm getting about three to two. Like, yeah. So what should you do? And it's just like this mind blowing moment where it's like, oh, I'm allowed to call with a non-made hand versus an overbet. That's insane. <laughs> like, no, yeah. that's math. That's literally just math. <laughs> like you said, you know, people think about things in a binary way where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's like you were talking about earlier, there's $80 in the pot and you're shoving for six and there it's binary. I don't, I'm either right or I'm wrong. Right. And it's like, right. no, you need to be right. Like, seven percent of the time like you know you got to hit seven you got to bat seven percent here um and people don't like being wrong and another thing about the scientific method that i found is people don't like testing when they Mm. can be wrong like this is why i think people play nittier and tighter because they're afraid of making a a giant mistake and that to me is such a massive massive mistake because number one it hinders your growth as a poker player and number two, you you don't get to expand. Um, you don't get to go deeper in the decision tree. You don't get to think. You, you miss plus EV spots because you never take them. Um, right. And that's that's going to hurt you in your career. I'm not saying be a maniac, but I'm saying like if you have a theory where you think it's plus EV, then test the theory out and, and right. see, and then think about it, and then you know analyze it and then move forward from there like in a worst case scenario okay you're punting some money in a best case scenario you're you're learning something that's going to earn you thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars over your career so like Mm -hmm. it's uh it's a worthy attempt um yeah and i mean it's a double-edged sword too because it's like it's what keeps the dead money flowing so it's no shock that tournaments are the most popular form of poker why there's a fixed investment and you're incentivized to just survive in a lot of ways. So that disincentivizes post-flop play, which reduces the game tree in a lot of scenarios. And EVs, uh, when you're talking about just like push-fold charts, are going to run relatively close. So it's like no mistake is really all that egregious. And that just keeps people coming back for more because the game does seem a lot more binary. It seems a lot more solvable. If you hear like average or below average tournament players discussing hand histories, all it ever is is like, could I have gotten away from this relatively nutted hand in this scenario <laughs> that would right. have kept me in the event longer? Uh-huh. Like, could I have just folded jacks off my 15 blinds facing an open? 
<laughs> like, right. you know, what are we even talking about? Like, you just view the game through a different lens than I ever will, or I guess a different lens that I've evolved into. I'm sure at some point in my career, I thought that way. But also the market was very different when I thought that way. Like people were making errors so large that edges could be derived by thinking deeply about like, can I do something that seems crazy? Yeah, it's uh, like we said, people don't, people don't want to make mistakes. They don't want to feel dumb. They don't want to look right. like a fool. So that's what leads to them asking these kind of like ridiculous questions like the jacks like oh should i yeah. could i just fold and it to negative. an open and, and then there's right. a bias right there's a yeah. the, the bias once you see that they have aces like ah oh, right. fuck that's that's the big part the negative feedback loop is so detrimental in this game because even like when you're right it's still negative feedback it, it doesn't confirm anything but now this confirmation bias is just ingrained in you right and the negativity bias too you know it sticks with us we can yep. make 10 great great plays and then do something silly and then that one silly thing is what we remember for the next five years right it's just how yeah. the human human brain is built what it evolved us to keep us alive you know like you have a scare <laughs> with a tiger because you left your cave during the night and it's like suddenly you stop doing that yeah don't leave your cave at night anymore right. um it's just too bad that we we weren't evolved to be superhuman poker players, right? All right, let's uh, let's ask a couple questions and then wind down. Um, okay, what's your what's your current big goal as related to your poker career? Man, I have to tell you, like uh, I love the game. I'm super passionate about it, but. So many of my goals are like out of my control that it's really difficult to call them goals. So it's like, like I, I, well, like I don't really get to control if and when I have seats. I don't really get to control my volume whenever it comes to like high stakes cash and stuff like that. And I don't really have the desire to like get on the high roller circuit. Maybe that'll change. I mean, maybe at some point I'll realize like these guys are the best of the best and I want to be able to hang my hat saying I can compete with them. But like my ego at 37 is not the same as it was at 27. I, I know where my lane is and then like, it's always been deep stack cash. So, you know, largely like I just want to be able to play the biggest games in the world consistently, but in a big aspect, like that's out of my hands, both from an availability standpoint, as well as like a funding standpoint, it's not easy to just accrue, uh, you know, for a lot of these games, like you need to have like, 5 million working role in order to ensure that like you're not going to go broke anytime soon. But I would say my bigger goals as a whole, uh, I kind of am really into the idea of like solving the problem as to how poker can become uh, more marketable. I, I just find it so ridiculous that this game has this cultic following that is so niche in nature and uh, it's so enthralling. Like, when, when you're able to kind of peel back the curtain and see the characters and how they've made it thus far, all the stories are just like super compelling. You know, we have so many of them. They're, they're just endless. Like, you know, whether it's guys like Seaver and, and Ike who were roommates at Brown and now are two world elites or, uh, you know, other guys like the, the kind of older school generation like Dean Eggs and Madison and the different paths that they've taken it's just Doyle, you know, even yeah, even older Doyle. He's right, uh, yeah. It's like we can cherry pick hundreds of guys who deserve it, but most importantly, it's like if we start to dive into the high roller circuit right now, I don't know anything about these guys. Like even a guy like Bonomo, who I've been familiar with since the day I started playing, because we're about the same age. 
Like all I really know from a bullet point resume standpoint is that Z Justin was a multi-accounter and Justin <laughs> yeah. Bottomo is the, is the all-time second most winning live tournament player. And like the in-between is just like shrouded in consistency, I guess. Like, yeah, he just like played tournaments and won for many, 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 many years. But it's like, there's way, way, way more going on there. And uh, to me, it's just, it just seems sinful that things like NASCAR, things like, you know, I, I guess even to a lesser degree, like uh, secondary sports like volleyball or WWE or uh, whatever, like these things are flourishing and hundreds of millions of people are spending money to, to view. And it's like, I really feel like the biggest challenge for poker is just coordination. And it's something that like the top just doesn't want to do. Tours refuse to coordinate with themselves. Casinos refuse to coordinate. Uh, you know, then it, it falls down to the next level of like upper management who's making rules and, and things like that. It's, I, I mean, it just seems like really problematic that we're so individualistic. And a lot of times there lacks, you know, we lack a proper narrative. Um, mm -hmm. Like you, you mentioned about, about Z Justin, right? It's a multi-accounter who got in trouble and then Justin Bonomo, the second winningest poker player of all time. There's no narrative in between. We don't right. focus on that story of the journey to know him as a human being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you watch like one of the, my shows that I love on Netflix that came out uh, maybe a month or so ago is a show called Hyperdrive. And oh, yeah, I love that show. It's right. amazing. Right. And, and so if the you watch Hyperdrive. photography is incredible. Oh, it really is. Like, it, right? it, like they're taking something relatively boring, but man, the shots are just insane. Yeah, it's, it's an awesome show. And like yeah. in the beginning, you're like, come on, man, I don't want to know this dude's story. Like, let's get into the races. I don't want to know it. But that mm -hmm. story is so necessary because that's right. what compels you to keep watching. You want to know if your characters are going to do well on the next episode. And then it's what builds the anticipation, the anxiety when they're, they're running their race, right? Mm -hmm. that, and yeah, it's like they have racing to back them, right? Like that's actually <laughs> something relatively exciting. You can see successes and failures just based on times, based on like how they perform. That's poker's true. Not that, poker's not that aesthetic. Yeah. So like we really, really have to shift the narrative away from the actual gameplay, distill it down to clips, edited shows, whatever the case may be. But like the vast majority of the content out there definitely should be on the career itself, like what it takes to live this alternate lifestyle and, you know, the glory, the fame and all of the pitfalls and failures that come along with it as well. Because that is compelling. And, and I mean, right. you know, even like the, the cult show, the two months, two million show, mm -hmm. I mean, people remember it. Uh, I yep. think it was, I, I didn't care for it myself, but <laughs> um, again, that was a narrative, right? That was a story that they, they put together and that was compelling in and of itself. And that's what makes human beings remember it because we're very right. story driven as mm -hmm. a species. And um, it's just, you know, poker needs to do better. And I, I think that that is sort of what increases the marketability. Um, yeah. And it's not we get we get fixated on the game itself. We get fixated on a high stakes game without telling the story behind all the players that are playing. So you, you have a rooting interest. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I totally agree. And you uh, you mentioned that you were you had your eyes set on some keynote speaking and stuff like that too, right? Yeah, I did my first keynote um, middle of June, I believe, or late June. 
somebody from the Re San Francisco Recovery Center just randomly stumbled upon uh, the blog I wrote about my mom who OD'd from drugs. And uh, they have an annual recovery summit where it's friends, families, and recovering addicts all in the same room, basically just like talking about their journey, celebrating it and everything else. And he read the blog, was moved by it, asked me to be a keynote speaker, which I had at that point never done. And, you know, just gave me 45 minutes of stage time. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, ultimately, uh, I'm very driven by helping others, but not, not necessarily so much on a small scale. Uh, I kind of struggle with the idea of giving a man a fish versus teaching a man to fish for a lifetime kind of, kind of concept. Like, you know, I walk past a homeless person on the corner, my heart breaks for them, but I don't feel necessarily compelled to give them $20 because I don't think we're getting to a root cause solution there. But I would happily like try to put a lot of brain power and money behind something that can potentially give him a place to stay instead of living on a corner or whatever the case may be. Uh, and you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with facilitating the bandaid. It's just not my mission, right? Like I think there's plenty of other people out there where that's, that's what they're happy with. That's where they're comfortable. For me, it's like, I just, I really enjoy examining root causes, uh, and trying to find big picture solutions. And yeah, I, I think like, you know, being able to speak to a lot of people and even if it's just using my past experience or, uh, again, narratives and, and story-driven type of messages, uh, I think a lot of good can potentially come from it. So let's take a long view here. Um, mm -hmm. Just two, two questions left. Let's take a long view um, from now until, you know, the time that, that Berkey's an old man. What, do, what would you like to have accomplished at the end? Man, that's, that's big. I would like to say that I impacted society as a whole in some notable way. And that's super lofty. And I definitely don't have my finger on the pulse of what that way would even be. But I definitely have a drive for it. Like it's something that gets me out of bed in the morning. And it's something that I, I feel like, I feel like anyone who is uh, of reasonable intelligence and uh, relative empathy is probably struggling with on the regular where it's like, well, I personally don't matter that much, but we as a whole certainly do. How can I contribute to that greater good in, in a meaningful, impactful way through the resources that I've been gifted? So whether that's intellect or privilege or uh, a podium or whatever the case may be. So it's hard because, you know, as somebody who is used to solving problems and used to taking action, it's very difficult to figure out how the hell you're going to contribute to society in a way meaningful, similar to like a Bill Gates or, or whatever the case may be. But uh, I'm kind of a firm believer in the sense that like, as long as you're mindful and thinking about it, opportunities will kind of present themselves and then the snowball effect will kind of take over. Yeah. Again, cognitive bias. Mm -hmm. You think about things, uh, you think about these problems, you know, it's a moonshot, right? It's a moonshot. You don't know how you're going to get there, but you're focused on the problem. And yeah. then as you go and live your life, you start seeing things and then you start making connections. And then over time, those connections can maybe lead to a path that leads to a possible solution or a possible theory. And then you just go from there. But having that target in mind is, is so helpful yeah. in, in noticing things because 
as human beings, we really don't notice a lot <laughs> and, right. and we notice what we think about. So just having that in mind and, uh, yeah, I, I, I hope you, you can pull it off because I like society. <laughs> I, yeah, I would like society yeah. to be improved, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's anybody there out here listening that's like, no, fuck society, let it burn. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but yeah, man. So final question, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you on the World Wide Web? You can find me on all social at Berkey11. And then you can also find me as far as like training and stuff like that goes at software.academy.com or tv.selfwareacademy.com. I've loved this very, very much. And um, let's do a round two in a year or so. Yeah, I can't wait. I really enjoyed this podcast. Questions were great. Very thoughtful. Uh, looking forward to seeing how this whole podcast thing shakes out for you. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please take a moment to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. And once again, I also wanted to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're on the lookout for a new platform where the games are safe and secure and the action is amazing, head to enhanceyouredge.com slash PKC to get your code and jump into the games. You must have a code to play as well as be 21 years of age or older. One final time, that's enhanceyouredge.com slash PKC. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time on Chasing Poker Greatness.